So I'm only here to give a pre-introduction. This movie was requested by Barry, and I'm going to ask him to give the actual introduction. But I want to set the stage uh, by addressing a few preliminary problems. The first problem is that as soon as you start talking about Buddhism, you're no longer talking about Buddhism. Because technically and precisely, Buddha's great insight is that there are no words to describe the real. He beat Jacques Derrida to the punch by about 3,000 years, who was a famous postmodern analyst of language. And Buddha's insight remains accurate. It's called the Advaya principle, and even that concept has to be considered inaccurate. So there's no way of talking about what we're here to talk about. One can only realize it, and the act of realizing it in an instantaneous, in fact, not even instantaneous, but timeless moment of clear intuition of ultimate reality is called pragya in many Buddhist schools. And without that realization of pragya, anything else you say is mere chatter. And not only can it not be spoken, but it cannot be grasped. It's far too subtle. So that's the first problem we have. The second problem is there isn't a Buddhism. There are many Buddhisms. There are so many Buddhisms that it's countless. And there are many ways of uh, slicing the Buddhist pie, even, that are very different. Some do it as the different turnings of the wheel of the Dharma. Uh, But you can also divide it into the Hinayana and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana, etc., You can also say there's the the Theravada Buddhism of Sri Lanka, which is very different than the Tibetan Buddhism, different than the Chan, different than the Japanese Zen, which is different than the other Japanese schools like the Jodo Shinshu, the pure land Buddhism of the chanting variety. Very different philosophies, very different practices, very different spiritual paths that all call themselves Buddhism. And then if you go with a microscope, you will discover that within any of those, let's say Tibetan Buddhism, there are many, many schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And not only the, there are four major ones that most people know about, within each of those four there are different tenet systems, uh, more esoteric levels within each of them, but then there are many, many minor schools that weren't always minor because of the... the uh, The power of any given school depends on political conditions. It's a cultural war. Uh, To me, some of the most interesting schools of Tibetan Buddhism are uh, no longer uh, even taught or even considered part of it, like the uh, Dolpopa tradition, the mountain doctrine, very powerful uh, transformative writings, but you hardly ever hear them referred to you get a kind of a watered-down Dalai Lama version of Tibetan Buddhism and you think that's all that there is, but it's not. It's, it's 
far more complex and deep. And then another way you can divide it up is into early Buddhism, then the Madhyamaka, which is the middle way, the middle uh, path of Buddhism, which was uh, established by the great uh, Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna. How many of you have ever heard or read anything of Nagarjuna? Great writer. We're going to be reading him in one of our advanced classes. And then beyond that, you get the Yogacara school and uh, Vigyanavada and various others. I won't belabor all of the Sanskrit names. But they are very different teachings. The early teachings are about the four Aryan propositions, which are often translated as the four noble truths. But the word isn't noble, it's Aryan. And Buddha was continuing the Aryan tradition. He was an Arya. Unless your name is Aryas, you're really not a Buddhist. And it's very important that you recognize that there, there, there was a historical continuity to what Buddha was doing, as well as something discontinuous and, and brand new in the history of philosophy. In fact, I would say that Buddhism is the, first, the world's first deligion. It's not a religion, it's a deligion. If you know the word religion, it means to relink. Buddha said there's no link with anything. That's all illusion. All you must do is delink from the illusion and you're free. But don't think you're linking to anybody. You don't exist. There's no self. This is the anatta or anatman doctrine. And there's no God to link to. There's no Brahman. There's no absolute. There's only emptiness, shunyata. And the only way to reach that is to let go of desire, tanha, thirst, because it's desire that creates dukkha or suffering. This is those four noble truths. But this was only the original teachings, and then as they became elaborated more and more in the uh, schools that developed uh, in the Mahayana tradition, then you get into the realization of non-duality that uh, goes even far beyond the Advaita Vedanta traditions in their philosophical subtlety. And it's the subtlety of the Buddhist writing that is so transformative. And, and I really recommend that you study the Buddhist sutras because it will bend your mind into so many different uh, hyperdimensional shapes that you'll never be the same. And, and it's extraordinary to follow the dialectical reasoning of the great uh, Buddhist philosophers uh, because that in itself will dissolve the imaginary level of the narrative of the ego and will bring you into the highest levels of the symbolic and push you over the cliff into the abyss of the real. And that's what they are intended to do and that's why the study of the Buddhist sutras is such an important part of the Buddhist tradition and why monasteries and universities were created and sustained by the Buddhist traditions. The oldest university in the world is the Nalanda University. We're going to name our library at the ashram the Nalanda Library in its honor. Uh, and it, it, it was not only for Buddhists but for also great sages of the Hindu tradition and uh, traditions and schools of the Vedanta. But the great sages, three, four thousand years ago even, were already collecting texts of uh, higher consciousness that had been downloaded in inspired states of ecstasy by the great 
masters, the rishis and the munis. Uh, long before Buddhism was considered a sect or a school or a dharma, it was part of the larger tradition of uh, ferment, intellectual, philosophical, spiritual ferment. And much of what you will read in the early Buddhist text has to be understood in the context in which it developed. And Buddhism was in a competitive situation. There was the, the, the degradation of the Brahmanical tradition, the Vedas, the Vedic tradition in which the Brahmin caste had this assumed superiority and you had to follow their rituals and all of that. It was losing its credibility and its legitimacy of authority. And at that point, there was a kind of a free-for-all. And the leading non-Vedic, heterodox or heretical uh, sect was the Jaina sect. The Jains were very powerful uh, spiritual tradition of austerity, tremendous austerity. And the Jains will say that Buddha, Gautama, Shakyamuni, was a failed Jain. Okay, and, and because in his early years of being a sadhu, of being a renunciate in the forest, he was following the Jain path of fasting and self-mortification and silence and withdrawal and uh, all of the Jain tradition of, of going naked, you know, having nothing to hold on to, letting go of everything by which you uh, could uh, establish an identity in this world. So there was nothing but transcendence left. And he finally had the great realization that it's not about mortifying your body. It has to be an intellectual realization based on the refinement of your intelligence to such a level that you reach the self-luminous realization that you're not the body, you're not the mind, you're not even anything that can be called the Atman. You reach a state of the absolute, which he defined or, or gave the word to as emptiness, because there are no things. But the emptiness is not a nothingness or a nihilistic position, a deadness, a spaced out void. No, it's the openness of, to the boundless, transfinite dimension that can fairly enough be called God consciousness, which is why later Buddha himself was made into a god. He's worshipped as a god. Here's a man who denies all gods, who 500 years after he died is worshipped as a god. And you see statues of Buddha bigger than any of, of the other gods of India. Of course, in Afghanistan, they've been blowing them up, you know, the, Muslims don't like uh, icons of gods. And it's very interesting that in the Muslim tradition, you're not allowed to have an imaginary image of God. That's prohibited. In the Buddhist tradition, you're not allowed to have a symbolic image of God. It's a different prohibition at a higher level of, of intellectual functioning. The image is okay, but don't symbolically create a narrative so that the, the God that Buddha is is not a God that is either out there or in there. It cannot be described. It is simply the realization itself that is everywhere and nowhere. So Buddhists who worship these big statues of, of Buddha or at least do, are doing rituals with them are not worshiping the Buddha as an objective being or a human being 
who attained enlightenment. No, but as the archetype of that state of the ultimate emptiness that is the supreme illumination that they already are. We all already participate in Buddhahood. But because of the ego's avidya, ignorance of its own nature, it falls into the imaginary narrative of being a, a human person, a sentient being, rather than the liberated Buddhahood. So this symbolic approach to liberation was the first absolutely intellectual path to achieving liberation that did not involve fasting or mortification or austerities. It no longer needed that. On the other hand, it said don't overdo those either. Take the middle path, the madhya maka. Take the path that leads to the greatest level of sattva or clarity and lucidity so that your intelligence would always be in that state of realization, mindfulness, vipassana, that capacity to see things as they truly are and see through the illusion that there are things at all. So Buddha's achievement is impeccable and unique in the history of religions or dharmas. And that's why I say thinking of it as a deligion is very important and separates it from its, uh, its counterparts in the, uh, the religious traditions of the West, for example, or even of, uh, of, of Vedanta. And that approach of not only Advaita, but of Advaya, of, of leaving behind your concepts, but only leaving them behind after you have refined them to the highest possible level that symbolization can reach so that you're only one step away from Buddhahood, which is achieved by silencing the mind and can be done just like that. That clarity of consciousness that can transcend itself because it has become so ultimately clear to itself uh, is the path of Sat Yoga as well. And so we salute Buddhism, although we are not Buddhists because there is no need to use a terminology that would deny the other paths. Because all the, the paths, including Christianity and all of the, the other traditions, have a Buddhist thread in their cloth. There are great sages who have gone through the same realization in Christianity as have uh, the great Buddhist monks and sages. And there is no conflict between one religion and the other. But the Buddhist texts themselves are such clear vehicles for the mind to ride upon, to reach its ultimate state of negation of its own imaginary pseudo-identity, that they are and remain some of the greatest treasures of a human culture. And for that reason, uh, the whole Buddhist tradition is of priceless value to us. And you don't need to be a nominal Buddhist to appreciate or take advantage of the wisdom uh, of that incomparable tradition. So we are here to celebrate Buddhism without having to name ourselves as pertaining to that tradition. But I think Buddha himself, if he were sitting here, would say he was not a Buddhist. 
So, with those few words out of the way, I'm going to ask uh, Barry to talk, because Barry is a Buddhist. He comes from the Sri Lanka tradition, and we are celebrating Vaisaka, or Vesak, I think they, they pronounce it there, which uh, is celebrated, interestingly, the same month as the uh, birth of Mahavira, the founder of the Jains. And there really was a competition between the two. Uh, and, and much of, of the Buddhist mythology was a repost uh, to the Jain. So, for example, Maha, in the tradition of Mahavira, the founder of the, the Jain tradition, and you see gigantic statues of Mahavira in the, the Jain temples, always naked, because they, the, the Jains said, don't even wear clothes, because if you have any shame or any attachment to how you look or anything like that, then you're still in the ego. So it's a test. These days, I frankly don't think it's a test, and, and I, I, I think there's more ego, and I've seen in nudist colonies than anywhere else. Uh, people can be very, uh, very proud and attached to their naked bodies, so I don't think it's relevant to uh, proving your uh, transcendence. But nonetheless, I think in that context it was, and they called themselves the sky-clad. Well, eventually, uh, a lot of Jains said, well, you know, we can't just go that far, uh, we, we don't fit into society. So there became two sects of Jains, the Digambara and the Svetambara, which were the, those who were clad in white. And those two sects of Jainism began to fight with each other, and they didn't have time to fight Buddha anymore. Uh, but um, the Jain sect remained fossilized and hasn't grown out from that original state as Buddhism has evolved over the centuries. But Mahavira's story is that he was the good boy. And when he went off to uh, achieve enlightenment, he asked his parents' permission. And, and he got everybody to agree that, yes, you can go, you've done your, your karma properly, and, and now you can uh, achieve your uh, transcendence. But in the story of Buddha, it's very different. Uh, Buddha is married, and he has a newborn son, who he names uh, Rahula, which means hindrance. <laughs> or fetter, right? And, and it's right after that he, he gives birth to this son that suddenly the idea comes into his head that he has to leave home and become a sannyasi, a renunciate of everything. And he leaves his beautiful wife and, uh, and his newborn son. He leaves this palace where he's a prince, where he's due to become the king soon. He leaves the whole kingdom in the lurch. He's been prepared all these years to take over the throne and now suddenly in the middle of the night without even so much as a goodbye, he takes off. Now you wonder, why would the mythologists of Buddhism leave this part in the story? Even if it was true, you'd think they'd airbrush it out, you know. But no, they emphasize this. As if to stick it to Mahavira and say, hey, Buddha's not the good guy. He's... He's the bad boy. He's willing to do whatever it takes to violate all the rules of conventional morality. And he's here to tell you that you have the right to do it too. There's no excuses, in other words. And that doesn't mean you should all leave your wife and children and go into the woods. But the point is when you hear the call of truth, whatever that truth requires of you, must be acted upon if you're going to live an authentic existence. And it was this element of the myth that put it in conflict 
not only with the Jains, but with the whole Hindu tradition, the whole tradition of, of following the, uh, the, uh, the sects, uh, the, the caste system, etc. Because he broke through all of that. And he wasn't a Brahmin, he was a Kshatriya, which was the second caste. It wasn't the highest caste. So he should have waited another birth until he was a Brahmin altogether before he did this, you know. So he violated all the rules and uh, he established a tradition that violated all the rules. And I think that we should keep in mind, that we need to have the power of being rebels, but rebels with a cause, but rebels willing to defy the conventional morality in order to achieve a higher dharma, than the society can even contemplate or imagine is possible. Because if human beings do not go beyond the conventional mindset that we are in today and aren't willing to question authority and bring our world into a new trajectory, then we're not going to last very long. So we need a whole lot of Buddhas willing to say no to the current system and yes to a higher dharma in order to survive, let alone to reach liberation.